Welcome everyone to your ongoing journey or leap into a new world of opportunity. Inside Japan podcast is a stepping stone for your next adventure. It is a show filled with informative interviews, perspectives on local life, and how you can master your path into the unknown. For today, kick back and listen to the wisdom of our host, James. James here coming to you with episode number 104 of the Inside Japan podcast. Thanks for hanging out today. As always, this show is brought to you by JobsJapan.com, helping you get your first job, your next job, or your best job in Japan. Go to JobsInJapan.com, my friends. This week, another entry into my little series of interviewing people I watched on YouTube before I came to Japan or right after I came to Japan. Uh, Whitney here had a, had, a, had a YouTube channel called Travel for Wit. <clears throat> and yeah, he was a very uh, slice of life kind of YouTuber. But those are kind of my favorite ones. You know, nothing uh, extravagant or he didn't kind of set up crazy situations. He just told about his feelings and what he's going through. And uh, he had a great, uh, we talked about it, I don't want to spoil too much, but he started on Jet, had a great time on Jet, but then made a tough decision to uh, move to a big city and try to go that way. And he did not just jump into English teaching like, you know, so many people do. Nothing wrong with that because it's a good, easy thing to get your feet going, get you get your... Get your career started, you know, get some money here and try to look for your other things as you improve your Japanese and stuff. But Whitney didn't do that. Um, he kind of went his own way from the start after jumping into the big city. And, yeah, it's a great story. And he, eventually he decided it was time for him to go home. And uh, as someone that is going home myself this year, it was great to talk to him. A lot of good stuff, a lot of good good thoughts here shared by Whitney. And uh, I'd love to have him on again someday to hear more of those thoughts after whatever he chooses to do in the future, because I'm sure he's going to keep doing good stuff. But uh, yeah, without further ado, let's get to it. Whitney from the YouTube channel Travel for Wit. Enjoy. All right, guys, very special guest today. You know, I'm coming up, it's my last year in Japan here, and, uh, you know, I came to Japan 10 years ago, and I have, have now interviewed a lot of people from the, the days of YouTube when I was I was still in America waiting to go to Japan. I would search YouTube and just binge the hell out of videos, and today I've interviewed someone that was someone that contributed to those videos. His name is Whitney, and he had a YouTube channel named Travel for Wit. How are you doing today, Whitney? I'm doing quite well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, first I got to say thanks for those videos. They definitely, you know, it just added to my excitement, as you probably know. You probably went to that stage as well. It's excited to go to Japan, learning as much as you can. And uh, yeah, now I'm here. I've been here 10 years. And so I want to say thanks for that first. Um, you're welcome. Um, you're one of only probably four people who's ever made a connection between the videos and me in real life without knowing me first. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, so yeah, so Whitney, though, we got to learn some people out there, you know, some less astute YouTube viewers and of Japan stuff might not know you yet. So let's learn a little bit about you. Um, actually, I want to start with the end point here. What are you currently doing professionally? Uh, now that you're back in America, what are you doing currently professionally? Um, so currently, I would say my title is Omniplayer. Um, technically, I am a scrum master, which is part of a software development team. I work for a startup. We build uh, node ops for blockchain, so Bitcoin, Ethereum. Um, we help build the infrastructure behind that. And then we also run a wallet-to-wallet -wallet trading platform for people trading cryptocurrencies. Wow, okay. So that sounds pretty cool. And I definitely want to come back to that. Uh, but now, now we know where you're at now. Let's go back to your roots here. So as I already spoiled, you definitely went to Japan in some fashion. Uh, so let's go to the start of that journey, right? So what kind of got you interested in Japan? And how did you kind of think about, hey, I want to actually go there for more than just a visit? 
this this is almost like a rote speech for me because people are always like, why'd you go to Japan? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's um, so they they're actually I can kind of identify three points in my life that said, hey, maybe you should go to Japan. Um, and the first one, I was about five years old, and we had an exchange student from Tokyo stay with us for three weeks. Um, and I didn't know where Japan was or what Asia was at the time. I mean, five-year-old, but I really did like the fact that he brought Pocky and brought us some origami and, you know, it's like, okay, Japan's really cool. No idea where it was, but uh, that was definitely like the, the seeds of it. And then um, one of the other ones, slightly more serious topic in high school. Um, my history teacher was very big on, and this is from the textbook, and then this is not from the textbook, and you should also learn that. And when he was talking about World War II, he was like, hey, your textbook says this. They, they spend a whole of one page on the bombing of Hiroshima. You guys are students of, you know, your students in my class, I should tell you a couple of things. And he had lived in Japan for a year or two years. Um, and so he had you know, real interest in Japan. He was like, as, you know, citizens of a nuclear power and living in a nuclear age as people throw around the term nuke someone you should understand what that is you should go to japan go to hiroshima see what that is and i was really struck by that as a high school student was like okay i promised myself i'm going to japan at some point um so a couple years later i uh, i took a gap year was backpacking through europe met a japanese guy in a youth hostel and had the hardest time having a conversation. Um, I spoke no Japanese. He spoke minimal English. But over probably 30 minutes or so, we got what would have been a two-minute conversation if either of us knew the other person's language. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a communication thing. I was like, okay, well, I want to go to Japan at some point. So I was picking my classes for university. I took Japanese. And it was my hardest class. Um, I was a terrible Japanese student, um, but I did it for two years and that let me do my third year in Japan. So I was part of the Associated Kyoto program. I did at Doshisha University for a year. Okay. Wow. So how was that? What's that situation like? We've interviewed a few people that do that. And uh, how did you find? So far, everyone's been positive. What about you? Was there any negatives to that? It seems all good. Um, oh, so Associated Kyoto program, they, it's, now they broke it up and you can do like a half year or a full school year school year is still not that long it's only eight months but uh they set you up with a homestay family and my first homestay family was terrible um and i say my first because i was only there a month and they i felt like a like a trophy pet in the house they treated me about the same as the family dog <laughs> okay and that was terrible probably one of my worst experiences in japan um they did not care about me. I was almost, uh, I, I was there to be entertainment for this retired housewife. Um, her kids were all in their 20s. Uh, one of them lived in the house. I saw him maybe four times in a month. Uh, and I was there so she could practice English, and her English was terrible. Um, and she also wasn't any fun to talk to, even if you could understand her. Um, wow. So I, it was, that was atrocious. Um, and at the end of a month, you know, after being insulted at the dinner table once, I, I called the resident director for the school and I was like, hey, I need to move. And they said, do you want us to get you a taxi and get you out of there right now? It was you know, responsive. And they were like, no, we will find you in a homestay family. And 
they found me a awesome, just delightful family um, on the the western side of Kyoto. And so I lived with the Ohashi family for the rest of that year and had so much fun. Um, I learned a ton of Japanese. I, you know, I got to play with my four year old host sister who taught me so much. And uh, four year olds don't care when you mess up grammatically, so you get tons of great practice. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember when I was teaching elementary school kids, like that was the best part. Like you could talk to them, and there's no kind of, there's no pretense of like if you make a mistake, it's bad, right? It's just talking. It's a really good practice uh, moment when you talk to speak with kids. But yeah, go ahead. Sorry about that. I was gonna say yeah. Um, as a four year old, she'd be like, oh yeah, let's play, and then sometimes I'd say, oh, what's this in Japanese? And she's like, I don't know. I'm four. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I'm like, hey, hey, let's learn in English then. That's awesome. That was my teaching career. Awesome. Yeah, I, 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 it's really interesting to share that story about the bad host family because I mean, I've never heard of that. You, you always hear positive stuff. Like, it seems like most of the people that decide to be host family are kind of nice people. It seems that way, and it seems like you got a, a good second one. But that's crazy that you had a bad first one. That, that's a that's a rarity. Um, uh, it's out. It's uh, to me. I I think I don't know. You have any, you heard anyone else having bad experiences? Um, I think we had one other person who moved in the course of the year that we were, that I was there. Um, and there it was, you know, it was other circumstances. I have not heard of anyone else who had a bad experience with a homestay family. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. It just seems like I, it takes the right kind of person. It takes a certain kind of person, right? Yeah. And you have to be actually interested in it. So I think that was the unique case. Yeah. 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 Okay, so then you finish your you're you're done with your time in that little uh the university se- session uh, not session the university time in Japan. You come back, and then you say, "Hey, that wasn't enough. Uh, you want to go in the jet program, right?" So can you talk us through that decision and uh, what were what were kind of what was your here? That's what I know. Talk us through choosing jet and what was your kind of goals going in to your jet experience? Did you want to go long term in Japan? Was it a short term thing? What were you thinking then? I was I well you nailed it with I want to go back. Um, and I think that's that was pretty obvious. I had a great time. I had this really cool Japanese girlfriend that I kind of wanted to go back and see. Um, things did not work out there, but uh, she's still really cool. Um, but I, yeah, it was just like that seems really cool. Also, this was 2006, um, and I was like, I don't know what I want to do. Um, you know, I ended up graduating early from university. So I just, I applied to JET and was like, I'm going to apply and also kind of look for other jobs and figure some stuff out. Um, and I wasn't actually a first choice. I was an alternate for the JET program. Wow. Sounds like you have a great resume even. Uh, I was, you know, uh, at school, Japanese practice. Um, the school that I went to, um, it didn't want someone who spoke Japanese. Ah, uh, yeah, that happens. Stupid stuff. And well, and I showed up and they're, you know, they were so used to, they had had jet teachers for at least a decade before. I think that's kind of the, at least the timeline of items that were left in that apartment. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, uh, yeah, at least a decade before. And they were used to, you know, at the elementary school, rather lesson planning was basically pantomiming the entire lesson with me over the course of what would be an entire class period. Yeah. Um, it's like, this is so slow. And I about, I think it took him about a month. Um, I was only going to that school once a week. Mm-hmm. By the fourth time I was there, I already knew a lot of the routines. I knew a lot of the things that they wanted to do activity-wise. And I could just talk through, oh, this is the activities and look at the book. And then we'd sit and have tea for the rest of the, the 45 minutes that I had there. Um, 
And so they, once I was there, um, because I spoke Japanese, they said that makes it so much easier. Just a little bit of Japanese. They requested jets who had some Japanese skills after I was there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite crazy how schools have these kind of pre preconceived notions. Like I saw, um, actually got leaked. I put it on my Twitter. Someone there's a list of like requirements some schools had, and they're really ridiculous. Like red hair from what was it what red hair from England or like something like that level is requesting. And obviously yours is much more general, but um, so obviously you fought through that. The, obviously the, the person they probably hired to to go to your school canceled or something. Then you, they tap you. You go in there. You use Japanese. They say, hey, this is the way to go. Now they use they want people that speak Japanese to school. That's a good change. Um, so could you talk us through your jet experience overall, though? I mean, it sounds like were you being utilized anything as 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 much more than tape recorder though? What were you kind of doing? Um, in some classes, I definitely just felt like a tape recorder, uh, and I'd say especially at the junior high school. Mm-hmm. And I it took me a while to learn that a lot of the jet materials teach you to be so creative and you want to get so involved in stuff and. I would make all these really complicated games at points. It was the simple activities that usually went the best. Yeah, man. Um, as long as I didn't try and get tricky um, about what I was doing. And then uh, the, the elementary school was actually the most entertaining in terms of doing things that were outside of the norm. In your high schools that I was teaching at, um, they had a set curriculum and they had things they wanted to learn. Whereas the elementary school was a test school for new programs and so we got to test out all sorts of things make our own lessons um we were doing magic tricks and some stuff as long as the kids were shouting out colors that was great mm-hmm. um it just kind of they gave me some free reign on stuff um and we ended up doing presentations in front of the wakayama board of education uh, where we tested our lessons with other classes beforehand and then had to do a real class in front of it was about 150 people wow it, all for all from from all over wakayama uh, as educators trying to pick up some of the things that we were doing in a lesson and they had wanted us to try some things out and we got to put our own twist on them that's pretty cool so that sounds like you're definitely active and doing you know you're not just sitting back and uh, you know, taking the paycheck and enjoying the weekends in Japan, you're really trying trying to be a good teacher, and that's good for sure. I like to hear that. I, well, I, you know the the speech that they give you at the very beginning. You're in Tokyo, you're kind of jet lagged, and you come to that big dinner, and they're like, "Hey, we've got someone who wants to speak to you," and open up the ceremony and say, "You guys are helping teach the future of Japan." I took that so seriously at the time, and I was just like, "Man, I don't know if I can live up to this." <laughs> <laughs> they want me to be amazing and change all these kids' lives. Um, and I was really frustrated with some of the other people who were in my cohort who were like, hey, free drinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know the percentages, but there's a large contingency of people that are being uh, jets for the for the good Japan experience. And that's nothing wrong with that as well, as long as they're doing their job, I always say, you know, different levels of, of, of try hard you can be, but as long as you're doing your job, that's fine. Uh, I want to spoil a little bit here for the listeners here. So you were only a jet though for two years. So I want to know about that. Oh, sorry, excuse me, one year. Now, now that is, that that's like the, the, the outlier. I mean, I'd say like it's either one year or like five years. It's kind of like the, the, the two choices. And you chose one year, even though it sounds like you're having a great experience. So let us know about that decision. They say, hey, you want to recontract? Maybe you said no. What, what was thinking there? So I was in uh, a little town called Kokawa. Um, cute, quaint, uh, rural, got a nice temple. Definitely visited if you're in the area. If you're going to Koyasan, it's cool. But 
it's really close to Osaka. But like two and a half hours from Osaka, if you catch the right trains, there was basically no one between the ages of 20 and 40. So I'd, my best friend at the time was in his 70s. Um, okay. <laughs> really cool guy who, you know, we would eat like packaged curry and study Japanese and play Go once a week. And I you know, hang out with his English club on Saturdays. Um, but I didn't know anyone. There was no one my age there. And going into the city was just really hard. Um, just that, that year, there were not a lot of other jets close by. I was kind of restricted. I tried hang gliding, made some friends there, but that was not an easy sport to kind of keep up with. Um, so I said, you know, I want to move into the city and I've got friends in the city and I've got some Japanese skills already. So uh, it was a tough decision. I almost recontracted. I, I almost changed my mind about four times, but uh, I ended up using to, to get an apartment in Osaka city needed to have proof of employment and I still had a month on my contract. So, and I was with uh, Urban Renaissance, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, is um, kind of like rent controlled housing um, in Osaka. And so they rent to foreigners much easier than a lot of other places. And so they're like, oh, you need proof of employment. I was like, hey, here's my jet contract. I said, oh, sure. Um, even though it was up three weeks later, I think. Uh, and it didn't seem weird to them to be like, oh, you want to have an apartment in Osaka City and work in the countryside, you know, and after three hours away. That seems fine. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. The jack money is that good. You can just, you can handle two, two houses. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I, I mean, the, in the countryside, I was paying almost nothing for that apartment. Um, I think it was 500 bucks a month and the school district was subsidizing it heavily for me oh, beyond that. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay. Maybe you could make it happen then. <laughs> I, um, but yeah, I moved into Osaka City and actually went to Hello Work, a you know, employment agency. Okay, so that's a real stop quick here because so you, Whitney, you're making it sound easy, but for people out there, that 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 jump from the safety net of jet to uh, a big city with nothing. Now that had to be pretty scary. I'll give you props for that because you know you you didn't want to have your jet Japan experience be in that small town without a lot of friends and stuff. I respect that, but yet taking that jump, I mean, that's a big jump. That's a scary one. Uh, but you I had did a friend. It. Oh, you had a friend. Okay, okay. Girlfriend was still there. I had a friend in this. <laughs> oh, I had a friend in the same building um, who was on the jet program, and you know, being in the countryside, I had saved money, so I was like, "Hey, I'm just gonna gonna see what I can work out." And wasn't sure if I was gonna teach English or whatnot. There's also a hello work in big cities. There's a hello work for foreigners. Um, oh wow, I've never seen that. There's one in Osaka. I know there's one in Tokyo. Um, Pretty sure Nagoya, you know, Sapporo would also have them. Um, it was like the the smaller office next door. So when I went into Hello Work, they actually ushered me in the other door, and they're like, "No, no, you go over here." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like herding the cattle. Okay, so what 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 did they kind of what kind of offers did they have for you there? What, what opportunities were there? Um, I was finding almost nothing, and it after about three months of going there and talking to people. Um, and applying to jobs, I got hired by a plastics company um, and they shouldn't have hired me. <laughs> I in no way had the skill set that they thought they were looking for because uh, they were looking for an international sales representative and I had a bachelor's in economics. Okay. <laughs> but I was also a native English speaker and their uh, job requirement was someone who had a really high TOEIC score. So they're like, oh, sure, we'll hire you. Um, and part of it was that the company was insane. Um, 
company president. I inherited the company from his dad about 25 years beforehand and was the biggest maker of plastic labware bottles in Japan. Okay. They're like, we want to, we want to sell internationally. So you're going to be on the international sales team. Um, terribly disorganized. Um, I started work. It took me a week to get a computer. Um, until then, I just had paper catalogs to study their products from. Occasionally, someone would talk to me and, and they were like, oh, I, I guess I should, you know, translate some stuff. I started translating by hand with a dictionary pen and paper. Um, crazy long story of working there. It was a terrible place to work. The company president didn't know what he was doing. Um, they were shipping stuff overseas, uh, you know, production facilities they were shipping to Vietnam. Three months worth of supply, and it was going to take three months to ship the machines, three months to ship the molds, and then three months to make new product and ship it back. So we were looking at a half year of being out of stock of some things and just didn't even realize it. Uh-huh. So, uh, it was it was a mess. And trying to work with uh, companies in the US, I, I ended up pulling meetings with uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific, which is the biggest labware provider in the world, uh-huh. and uh, a couple other ones. And I was talking to these guys and going, hey, we've got a great product here. And they said, yeah, actually, that looks like a great product. It's set up. Um, we are looking at contracts about this long and certain price ranges. We need these details and information. And the company president would come back with, it's a good product. Tell them to buy some and give it a try. <laughs> would never sign a contract. He wouldn't even entertain it, like get into negotiations with the contract. But this isn't your mom and pop shop that's down the street. You can't just tell them to buy 10 boxes and see how they sell. You know, these guys need commitments for a couple of years out. And he would never do it. Okay. Um, so, None of that ever came through. Um, on the day that they, I, I had a Chinese coworker. The company was actually doing very poorly. I was kind of realizing it, but not really. They had us cold calling old customers that they had snubbed more than a decade ago. Um, and they were asking me and my coworker, how's that going? And I was like, well, I'm calling people we haven't had a relationship with for 10 years. Uh, you know, Chinese, so my Japanese isn't perfect, and I'm a woman, and these guys are just not being respectful of me. And someone else at the table was like, "Well, you're flawed. So get over it and keep working." <laughs> I, at that point, I heard that, and I like remember writing in my notebook, "Fuck this place." I'm... Um, and I had I had already been talking to recruiters in Japan, and I was like, "I just need to find a way out of this company. This is so toxic, and nothing's getting done." Wow. And that was, I think that was early in the week. And that Friday, uh, Joe was like, hey, come over in the office. Uh, I need to talk with you. And it's like, oh, like a review or something. Maybe I should grab my dictionary. He's like, yeah, you should grab your dictionary. And my electronic dictionary came back. He's like, oh, do you, do you want Yelamotasan to translate for you? Because she spoke pretty good English. And I was like, no, no, I think I can handle this. Because so do you know what kaiko means? That my dictionary, I was like, oh, dismissal, I'm getting fired. Yeah. Um, well, I was laid off um, and it was terribly stressful, didn't know what I was going to do. Two days later, the company went bankrupt. Oh, wow. Okay. So you got out the right time. <laughs> I got my, you know, a, uh, you know, my pension, which really have been saving, but, you know, 
cashed out my pension that was with the plastics union and I actually figured out how to do Japanese unemployment. So I was getting a little unemployment check and I started so many other people picking up random uh, modeling and voice acting gigs on the side. And by the end of the year, I was in the wine business. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I want to jump into. So let's talk about that. You made a few videos about this, uh, the wine thing. Um, so first of all, real quick, check the Japanese level. So you're on the t- calling people on the phone. Your Japanese would be pretty, pretty rocking at this point, right? I just still thought my Japanese was, was not very good. And on the phone was still really hard. Mm, okay. So yeah, that's everyone. The phone is a different level for everybody for sure. So that makes sense. But how did you get this wine job though? This is this kind of like selling wine thing. So, um, there was in the Kansai scene, which is a, a little publication in Kansai, there was a like two line wanted thing of if you like wine and want to work hard. I was like, well, that's just so terse and so short. Well, so what? I'll go for it. I, I took my resume and I sent it to the address and I was like, here's my resume. If it interests you, email me back. Um, but it'd be just as as short as that entire thing um and i ended up working for a really awesome guy who uh, started a wine business in japan worked with another company um taken some time off and started his own wine business so um i became the wine rep for osaka or a wine importer with austrian and italian wine so uh, this now you're this is framing your job description here. So you're like I'm going from the videos. Tell me if I'm wrong. You would like go into a restaurant or something and say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Right, that kind of sales level. Yes, um, but I mean, it was the importer. So sometimes I would be selling to distributors. I'd go to a distributor shop and talk to them about it, and then that's where you got into a whole bunch of the interesting the social levels, the hierarchy, and the, the connections because these restaurants have been buying from the same shop for years. And at the beginning, I did not know this, didn't get this. Um, lucky enough to have a customer who explained some of it to me when I was, uh, I was probably a year and a half into the job and it made my job so much easier. Um, it was like, yeah, wines are, are really good. Some of them are on the expensive side. Uh, I buy from you know, 14 different importers or I buy from nine. I think she said I buy from nine different importers. I buy from you. I don't buy from number eight. The guy who's number 10 has been trying to get me to buy his wines for seven years. It was like, oh, as you get into that, sometimes these guys have a connection with their restaurant. They only buy from this one distributor, this one liquor shop in town. So there I would have to make a connection with that liquor shop and ask them to carry my wines. And they may or may not have wanted to take stock of it, especially is at a premium they don't want to take big stock of it so and i would have to find several of their customers who were near each other but not completely related introduce the same wine to all of them and get it on their wine list so that the distributor would buy it and then sell it on to the customers um, or i'd have to sell direct <laughs> so is this i mean this sounds like a a very intense Japanese job you got to know Japanese you got to be a good schmoozer i mean if it's safe to say it right half the job is schmoozing at this point right I I actually most of the job is schmoozing at this point. Yeah, okay, um, okay. My boss was uh he's Austrian. Um so his Japanese is like there's all sorts of words, his grammar's not amazing. Um so my spoken Japanese was better than his, but his palette for wine and his you know, vocabulary of wine descriptors was way better. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely hard. Uh, it was commission only, actually. Oh wow! So that that's scary, right? I mean, I don't know how good you were doing, but that's pretty scary, right? Everything is about how much you sell. It's tough. Uh, at the beginning, I was doing terrible. I I had a, a job at night working for a little startup that uh, was doing research related to online gambling, and I helped them out for a couple months until I got on my feet. Um, at the end of it, though, it was about the relationships, and it was about the connections with the restaurants, the people I knew there. And as I basically just made those connections and made friends with my customers. I would show up after work and have a glass of wine with them. I'd show up to their events when they had the two-year, five-year reunion, you know, anniversary for the restaurant, a bottle of wine, chat with them, know their friends, chat up their customers. Um, by the time I left the wine business, because I was in that for about three and a half years, I was actually, let's say I was working four days a week. I would basically get up, read the news. I'd start at 10 a.m., make phone calls for a couple hours. Then my afternoon, I'd, you know, I had a little motor scooter. I would motor across town, um, wine shops and restaurants, and I'd spend 6, 6.30 until the restaurants are opening. Just chatting with people and and them taste wine. <laughs> so, I mean, that sounds good. I just get it. Once you build up the relationships and stuff, it might be a pretty cool gig. I mean... But I guess I got to ask, at some point, you said, um, I don't want to do this anymore, right? So what was that? What was the thinking there? Uh, two parts. Um, I loved my customers, uh, but I'd been dating a really awesome Japanese girl for about four years, and she decided she didn't want to be my girlfriend anymore, um, which actually was her saying she wanted to get married, but she didn't want to ask me, didn't want to pressure me. So that um, we broke up was a rough bit patch. Um, and then I just, you know, I was doing all right in the wine business. So I was making all my bills, putting a little bit of money aside, um, had great wine all the time, great food all the time, was actually gaining a fair bit of weight because of it. <laughs> um, I, and, and I was, you know, I would be out till like probably a couple times a month. I would be out until four in the morning at different wine bars. Um, it was a great party at all, but I was just like, this isn't my lifestyle. This isn't where I want to be. Mm. Um, I also, I wasn't making quite enough. I was like, I just want to want to do something else with this. Cool. I mean, that's a, now you've been in Japan total, let's say is it five years or so about this point, five or four or five. Um, I think it was almost, I mean, include study abroad. It was actually because. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's one year in abroad. Include study abroad. It's. It's almost seven. It's a little over seven years, actually. Yeah. So wow. So it's a long time in Japan, and then you finally said, "Hey, it's not for me." Broke up with the girlfriend here, and just I don't get too not, not a psychological show, but you said just to be clear, she she wanted to get married, but you weren't really down with that. You didn't want to ask her, right? I wasn't ready. Oh, okay. okay. Um, also, we did the whole. So you know that oftentimes the meet the parents thing is you're asking for their daughter's hand in marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, I did that. <laughs> I did that myself. <laughs> um. She like was kind of pushing me towards that. Um, she was from Nara, but lived in Os like moved into Osaka with a friend about the time we got into a relationship. Um, and the two of us you know, had a couple of great years together. But then her lease was up with her roommate. Um, parents knew she had a boyfriend, but you know, typical of a lot of Japanese families, she hadn't told them anything about me. Um, and 
their way of telling her that they knew she had a boyfriend was you know, she was spending several nights out in Osaka and they just left a pamphlet on the back of the toilet about STDs. Wow, <laughs> great. <laughs> but that was their her way her, their way of telling her, hey, we know you have a boyfriend. Um, then she was like, hey, I have to move back in with my parents. Life's going to be easier if you meet them. If I try and introduce you, that's like saying we're going to get married. So you should accidentally meet them. Um, so ended up accidentally, not really an accident, meeting them at an event. Um, used to be a cheerleader. So we'd gone back to see some of her old cheerleading friends and her parents showed up there, accidentally ran into me. And then dad, who completely unaware, didn't know I was going to be there. His hair's all greasy, his you know, shirt's all disheveled. He was just showing up and kind of like, Owning it in. Oh yeah, my daughter's got another event she's going to. Um, but he was like, oh, and just, like fixed his hair real quick. It was like, oh, they give me a big handshake and take me out to dinner and awkward and embarrassing. Hilarious by the end of it. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, so then uh, that's kind of okay. Now we understand. Now it's time to go. So I don't know what is, I think the mindset there though. So you know, obviously you liked your time in Japan overall. I'm, I'm assuming you took the time to learn Japanese. You like Japan. What was the what was the mindset out there? Were 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 you happy with your decision? Was it a tough decision, or how long did you struggle with that to decide? Hey, I want to go back into America. And, you know, might be done with your living in Japan. I don't know career. At the time, I was thinking I'll probably come back to visit. I don't know if I'll come back for anything long term. But I was also I was really frustrated on a couple levels. Um, there were you know if talk about the microaggressions ever uh but those were totally getting to me okay yeah so just in case anyone doesn't know what that is can you give us a few examples of those i'll throw in some if you don't give my favorites <laughs> um you know as as someone who's taken time to learn japanese when you say three words of japanese and everyone's like oh, so amazing yeah yeah so yeah, yeah to which i learned the proper response to that so you know from one of my teachers he's like, oh yeah which is even a dead tree adorns a mountain. It's archaic Japanese. That's humble. So you're correct in saying that, but you're also showing off when you do it. So it's a real dick move to do. <laughs> nice, nice. I, so you know, as someone that definitely knows those that knows these things, you know, the wow, you use chapstick's great. Your Japanese is great. After saying, you know, konnichiwa, that's it. Uh, do you think it's it's a true thing? It's a true phenomenon that the, the aggression word is the right word to describe that. I don't think aggression word is the right word to describe that, but it's definitely at points the way it feels. That's kind of the mindset I was at. I was, I was fed up with a lot of it. Um, and yeah, part of it is also, you know, the harder you try to be a part of everything that's there, when you try and, you know, such an in-group, out-group culture, and harder you try to be a part of the in-group, and you are obviously trying you're failing um that's definitely the way i felt at the time mm -hmm. i think that's a good way to say it. yeah the, the the when you when you're trying hard to be a part of it you're, you're not really a part of it right because you have to try hard to be a part of that group and i think that's that's a good statement for sure um yeah i definitely you know i'm leaving this year too and i definitely have i understand those feelings of kind of it does build up and grade on you a bit and it, what, the one thing it's tough for people to understand i think is it's not like it, it, what we're complaining about is a really small thing in terms of life, right? Someone saying your Japanese is good when they didn't, you know, they're not actually evaluating your speaking level. But it does get annoying after a while. You know what I mean? After years, it does kind of grate on the soul a bit. Um, 
but yeah, it's, it's also it's a level of it's like a level of background noise. Um, I would compare it to if you ride in an airplane for a long flight. They get used to riding on the airplane, but the moment you step off the plane, you realize there's been that buffeting background sound and everything you've been doing, and that's that's also partly just the process of always switching into another language, switching into another culture, kind of going back and forth between those, where you're always expected to not know things, you're always expected to uh, to not be good at, at you know your speaking skills, your gift giving, your table manners your social skills and um that i i had plenty of other reasons as well i also my best friend at the time was uh was a jet um irishman named david super cool guy who lived in the same building i did and he was finishing up his third year so he was going to he ended up doing two more years but he ended up moving out of osaka city because they have a limit i'm allowed to do three years in the city so i was like uh my girlfriend's gone. My best friend's leaving. Uh, you know, I'm not making enough money. I'm kind of frustrated with my job. I, you know, society in general here is just kind of grading on me at a small level. Out. Yeah. Okay. That may, I mean, that makes sense. And you made the jump there for sure. So you talked about the transition there. When you got back, uh, I don't know if you moved with the parents or whatever. How kind of you get? How long it takes you to get kind of get on your feet after you move back? Um, I did move back in with my folks. Um, they're migratory, so they kind of, they left me the house for months at a time while they were gone. Um, reverse culture shock was way worse than I expected. Oh yeah, can you tell us about that? What would kind of give me some examples? Um, coming back and just looking at things and saying that doesn't make sense, and it can be anything from the way the mail is delivered to you know, the way people drive in traffic to the way people queue in the grocery store. I went to a local grocery store and I saw what people were buying and I just, I looked at it. It was, the people ahead of me in line were getting like somewhere around seven to 10 pounds of meat. Um, you know, I'm like little hostess snacks and a two liter of Coke. And I saw that and I was just like, this isn't food. <laughs> what are people doing? And then the people at the register were, were just like, yeah, whatever. Plastic, okay, uh, and they were weren't really rude, but it was that kind of same level of microaggressions? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But also, from a society that I thought I knew and was and thought I would recognize, um, specifically, remember after that time in the grocery store, in the parking lot, I like just sat there and cried for a minute. Like, I don't know what I'm what I'm doing with my life, and I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm confused, and I don't fit in. Wow. So you move back, um, and, and you still don't find that feeling of home there. No, um, I say there, there's kind of a contrast there. I, I know I'm running up your time here. Um, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. I, uh, so I, you know, I kind of said like I don't fit in here. I didn't don't fit in there. Um, and I moved back. I I knew it was going to be at a bit of a shock, but I like I didn't tell people I was moving back. I think well, maybe five people I was moving back. And I was running into people for months who were like, I didn't know you were in town visiting. So I moved back and I just I quietly got a job um, working customer support for a local company on the phone. And I you know, got with some old friends. I was really figuring myself out again. I would say first three months were pretty hard. Uh, it took me a good year before I was really 
part of it. Part of it was just people couldn't relate to how my life was. You know, talk about something. I was like, oh yeah, we used to do this in Japan. Yeah. And I, I would how about like, yeah, because I want to know about that. Was there any kind of, I know you had friends in high school and college, I'm sure, and I don't know how many you lived in your hometown or whatever, but when you got back, is there, how much of that changes, right? Is it kind of different then? Like, well, there's a lot of stuff you missed too and a lot of stuff they missed as well from your life. Is is there, is, is the friendship ever go back to normal or is it always kind of, is there a difference there now? Um, I would say the people that I have been close friends with throughout life, um, I still have that connection. And sometimes it takes it takes you sometimes a few hours to find it. I had a friend from university um was on my freshman hall and I didn't see him not only for the the entire time I was in Japan, but uh well, I had been back a couple of years and I ended up getting I actually got laid off from the company of the customer service job, uh manager there. And uh Played off there when they were downsizing a bunch of stuff. And so I said, you know what? I, I just need a break. I'm going to do a road trip. And I drove all the way out to Maine and had gone to school out on the East Coast. So uh, I crashed on couches with friends. And almost every friend that I met up with, you know, it'd be kind of that awkward, hey, we haven't seen each other in a long time. What do we talk about? There's this gap of seven to 10 years. Um, where we've, we've only had a couple emails or letters, a couple Skype calls. Um, you know, and sometime between, the, depending on the person, sometime between an hour in and about four hours of hanging out with them, um, I just hit that groove of talking to each other again. And you, you know, you have those things that you talk about that happened over the in that large gap of time, but you're also talking about things that just happened last week, or today. And somewhere after you start with that, it's usually within a couple hours that. You just kind of look at each other at some point and you're like, yeah, this is why we're friends. <laughs> and that just lasts. Um, you still get it, even if you haven't seen each other in you know, years. That's cool. Um, yeah, the, like, it, it's weird to see the, the microaggressions that kind of, kind of come back to you in the States on the other side, where you're like, nobody, nobody bowed to me when I bought my groceries today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's... like, I... It's not realistic. You shouldn't expect that. But, you know, people bowing to you when they hand you their change at the grocery store, or thank you for coming in or something. And you're, yeah. I, it's weird that they, you know, and then the things that you miss that you didn't realize, you're like, Man, I just really miss Okonomiyaki sauce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It serves like, I'm sure it goes the other way too. When you're in Japan for a long time, I miss the stupidest stuff too. And I know when I go back, I'll miss stupid stuff. I don't even know I like that much in Japan. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's weird. But it's, I'd say it's weird. And yeah, have you had some of those cravings where you're like, I never craved this in the States at all? Yeah. Just... Yeah. It's like, I don't even like this stuff that much, but I'm thinking about it right now. I don't know why, but. <laughs> um, I guess I mentioned this before we started recording. So bring it back up. I guest lecture for um, old high school. So I go back to the same classroom where I had the experience that, uh, you know, one of the experiences that brought me to Japan in the first place. And my old humanities teacher is still teaching and she teaches Asian humanities as well. So she brings me in and asks me questions and it's just turned into a big Q&A session with the students. <laughs> That's really Ask cool. Ask me anything. That's cool. That's got to be kind of, uh, I don't know, keeps the link there, you know, keeps the link in Japan. So you kind of, not you know, live in there, but you still link there somehow, somewhat. Eh? And, and so I've been doing that every, you know, every semester. And I've, I've gone back to Japan twice since I left now. Uh, I went 
back last year and the year before. Um, uh, first time was for uh, was for uh, was it seven weeks, and then this last time was for two and a half months. Um, just bouncing back and forth between uh, between Kansai and Tokyo, and ended up doing a blockchain conference in Tokyo and some public speaking events. Um, I came back to the high school and I'm in the classroom and you said, so what's different now? What's different about going back? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask too. Um, I was going to say, <laughs> I know I'm stealing your question. That is, <laughs> okay. It's the right question. Um, because I didn't get it when I was there and I didn't get it even when I had left. Um, going back, you know, and starting to see, you get some degree of it, but Cultural boundaries for both different cultures become very clear after you kind of bounce back and forth enough times. And what was the, the, the microaggressions in one place or another, as long as you can start to see that as a game, or I started to see it as a game for myself. Um, anytime, you know, I kind of had two different rule sets. You know, they, the cultural rule set for Japan and the cultural rule set for the U.S., in the U.S., I pretty much have to play by the U.S. ones. You, know, you, you get a pass on doing something that's very Japanese, and people are like, oh, that's eccentric. In Japan, if you mess up culturally, oftentimes it's, you know, you're a foreigner and it's completely acceptable. Oh, yeah. And then when you get, you get things right, you get, uh, you, know, you get applauded and appreciated for that. And so realizing that you kind of take what side of, you know, whatever side of the culture you want, uh, ends up with with a really interesting degree of freedom of being able to interact with people you just get to it's almost like when you start a conversation you choose how you want to be in every conversation part of that is probably just being a tourist but it's ridiculously fun yeah and sometimes you can just be stupid i'm I'm a yeah i'm a tourist here i I came here yesterday i'm just a tourist i mean act like that um i want to know like now that you can look back on your time does it have you do you appreciate it more or less that you've been gone now for six years i i definitely appreciate it more and i miss it a bit actually um ideally i'd like to be able to spend probably about three months out of the year in japan in general um not always bouncing back and forth to conferences and all that um but I, you know, I really like elements of both cultures and places. And it's, yes, it's the little cravings that scratch that itch of I, I want midnight ramen, but at the same time, I totally want an American steakhouse on occasion. I, you know, like crazy hippie vegan food from Boulder, and I, you know, I sometimes I actually miss the the racket of walking by a pachinko parlor. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's gonna happen to me too. I'm gonna miss these kind of small things like that you don't think about. Um, but yeah, so to kind of bring this thing to a close here, to hear a lot of awesome stuff, I learned a lot, uh, and it's cool to hear about the, your your experiences there because you had a long and interesting trek through Japan and now back home. But um, what kind of advice would you give someone? A lot of people have to sh- people listen to the show uh, are usually in their home country. Have to have to listeners in Japan. So let's talk to the people that are outside Japan right now. What kind of advice or something you wish you know that would have made your time in Japan better, right? I mean, that advice could be something as simple as study Japanese more, or it can be something deeper than that. What what kind of advice would you give somebody? Um, actually, this is advice that that I would give to you, and I specifically do want to give to you as someone who's going to leave Japan. Um, may not realize it, but there's kind of a culture, especially in the Jet program, where people are almost bucket listing all the time. 
they are saying, I have these experiences and I have this limited amount of time. Japan is really, really conducive to that. It also applies in the US. If you've got you know, two months, three months, six months, a year until you're going to Japan on the JET program or through some language school or you know, months until you're leaving Japan, figure out what you want to do in that time. And Japan kind of does this naturally with the seasons and with the way that things are punctuated in Japanese life. There are certain things that you just kind of realize that the punctuation of the cycles is really helpful in identifying what is good in that year and what is you know, what you want to do. Um, I, I don't think about this as you know, people's New Year's resolutions, but in in like smaller scope of what do you want to do in this season, what do you want to do before you leave? And I saw people do that in the JET program all the time saying, I've got six months and I always want to see this temple, I want to go to this festival and uh, absolutely go with them. Find that element for yourself and for other people. That's, you know, your time is not not unlimited. In that short time, make the most of it. Do that, do that before you go to Japan. Do that in Japan. Do it when you leave Japan. Do it wherever you are. Good stuff. Good stuff for sure. I think it's true. Really true. Like, you know, when you're back in your home country, it's like I have all the time in the world. But when people do have that limit of Maybe people got to start thinking about the limit is like, you know, before you die or something, you know, like I know people in the jet program, it's easy. If I'm here in Japan one year, I got to do all this stuff. But then when you're, you know, home, you're chilling. You're like, oh, I got I got time to do that. But I guess it's not true. You know, if you think about it, it isn't true. Um, but yeah. It just seemed to slip by in a lot of pl- other places. But yeah, Japan seemed to have that, that punctuation through Japanese culture and then through the jet programs, ever constraints were on people's contracts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. Whitney, you shared a lot of stuff today. Uh, we didn't get to talk about it, but I will use your artwork, your art artist as well, and I will use Whitney's artwork here on the uh, show notes page and on the uh, graphic here. But yeah, Whitney, wish you the best of luck. So thanks so much for sharing your experience. Hopefully, uh, you Thank know, you. hopefully I, I definitely would want to, maybe after I come back, I'm going to keep the show going after I go back to America. So maybe I'll talk to you again after I'm like, I have, need more advice about maybe those American microaggressions you're going to get to me too much. I'll need your advice. But uh, yeah, good luck with everything. Thanks for the YouTube channel as well. I'll link that as well. If anyone wants to see, uh, I'll link a few of my favorite videos of Whitney's here. Cause, uh, one thing you, you, you know, in this interview, you, you, uh, demonstrated as well. You're not afraid to share your feelings and, uh, you know, let the world know how, how you think about things. I think it's really cool and, uh, should be admired. So thanks Whitney. And, uh, yeah, good luck to you in the future. Appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, hit me up when you get back for a drink sometime. For sure. I really hope you enjoyed today's Inside Japan podcast. Dive deeper into our world and learn more about what awaits you. Check out ALTinsider.com. And for regular up-to-the-minute job postings, check into jobsinjapan.com for the next big gig. Please tune in for our regular excursions into the world of Japan. And good luck. Gambate. Don't